0: Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, brothers and sisters, it's uh, my joy this morning, even. Uh, As we grieve the passing of Kojo, now to invite us to turn to our time of scripture. Again, thanks for tuning in with us. Please stay with us. We are going to get into God's word and we are going to hear good news this morning as we continue our sermon series for this month called Portrait of a Disciple. And we've been considering some of the key components of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be a follower or a disciple. Of Jesus, and we've been doing this in Paul's letter to the Galatian church as he spoke into a crisis that they were having in their discipleship and in their understanding of the gospel. And his main thrust, as we've seen for the last couple weeks, is this, that it is only through faith in the Messiah Jesus that we are justified, that we are declared right before God. And we've considered how this justification brings about intimacy with God, that in being justified, all of us, not just the super spiritual, not just the pastors, but all of us, become sons of God in the sonship of Jesus. And we've considered how the gospel brings us into the mission of God, that God is taking the world back for himself in Jesus Christ, that death, sin, and evil, and disease, and sickness do not have the last word, and that we get caught up in this mission of announcing the kingdom and of embodying it in how we live as we worship Jesus and follow him, with our lives. We've considered intimacy and mission, and today we're considering another crucial aspect of the Christian life community. And not just community in, in the general sense, but specifically the communion of believers, the church. Why is church so important? for the Christian life? How are you and I connected to the church? Does our connection to one another go beyond just meeting in the same room or tuning into the same stream? The answer to this question actually has profound implications for your life and for mine. And that's what we're gonna consider this morning. So I invite you to open a Bible to Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter three Verses 26 to 29. And I invite you to give ear, because what we are going to read and here is indeed the word of the Lord. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. It says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ... Have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord to us, and I invite you to pray with me. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come upon us even as we've read your inscriptured witness? Would you, by your inner witness, kindle our understanding, our hearts and our minds to to receive this word, to understand this word, and how it impels us to be caught up in your mission, how it impels us to be caught up in your love, how it, it impels us to live right now in this world that you are redeeming. Do this, Holy Spirit, in us, for we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So what is our connection to church? What we're going to do this morning, here's our roadmap, is we're going to see what the Bibles claim is about this. We're going to look at the biblical claim of our connection to church, then we're going to consider why the Bible can make such a claim, and then we're going to consider some implications of this claim for our lives. So that's a roadmap. Would you come with me as we now consider the claim? And it's a bold claim. It's a stunning claim. Look in verse 28, these stunning words. The end of verse 28, it says, you are are all one in Christ Jesus, you are all one in Christ Jesus, you, that's plural, are, this is a statement of fact and of our being, all, all is pretty clear, all means all, and that's all all means, in other words, no one who has put their faith in Jesus is excluded from this, we are all included in this, you are all one. The many are one in Christ Jesus. Isn't that just a stunning claim? It's not just that there is a connection between your life and the church and the other people in the church, but that there's actually a oneness and a unity that we share that brings us into something that is bigger than ourselves. That's the claim. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Why can the Bible make such a claim? How is it exactly that we are all one? Look in verse 26 and verse 27. He's just said in verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And remember, that's the fundamental claim of when we're justified, we become sons of God. We're brought into this new family and and there is many becoming one in the new family of God. And then in verse 27, it says, for or because as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ the bible can make this claim of the many being one because of what happens when we put our faith in Jesus because of what salvation means you see, baptism, you might, you might have heard that word and go baptism, you know that's when they dunk people with water and some traditions just spray people. Um, baptism is the sacrament or the sign of our introduction into salvation. And it was the practice of the early church and the church now. When you become a believer in Jesus, what follows is baptism, this visible sign of what has happened already invisibly in the spiritual realm. And the symbolism of baptism is this. That a person goes down into the water as a sign of their dying and then they come up again as a sign of their rising into newness of life. And really what, what the Apostle Paul makes clear is that it's a sign of being united to Jesus in his death. In his own death for you on the cross, you die with Christ and then of being raised into his very resurrection life. That's why Paul's language is so incorporative here. That's why he says you weren't baptized you know, for Christ or because of your faith in Christ. He says you were baptized into Christ, into. You're immersed in his life. And what this tells us fundamentally about the Christian life and about salvation is that we are not saved by saying a prayer. We're saved by being joined to the Savior. We're not saved by saying a prayer. We're saved by being joined to the Savior through faith. That's what Paul is saying here. And what he's saying is when that happens, you are brought into a new situation of being in Christ and of Christ being in you by the Holy Spirit. You are all one in Christ Jesus. I want you to consider this bag of marbles. I've got a bag of marbles here. Now, this is one way that many individual entities, right? I've got a bunch of marbles here. This is one way that many individual entities can be one, right? They're they're in the same sack. They're in the same bag, and they're kind of just bumping around in there, floating around in there. But notice how with a sack of marbles, there's no real connection between them. They're not actually linked to one another, they're just linked maybe because they have a common set of cultural values or a common belief system or, or, you know, they just like being together so they get together. But there's no real link or connection between them. Now, what the Bible is spelling out here in terms of the unity of the church is more like a cluster of grapes, not a bag of Marbles. You see, it's similar to the marbles because there are many individual entities and they are made one, but with some key differences. With the grapes, they're connected to one another because they are all connected to a common source. They're connected to one another because they are connected to a common source of life. There's a vine that is connecting them. And the vine, you know, is is attached to the main trunk of the the grapevine. And each grape receives nutrients and sugars and, and saps. And even the vine actually is in the grape. There's like these little tendrils I can imagine running between the connective tissues of the grape into the vine through which it receives its nutrients. There's a connection to a common source. There's a connection to one another. And what happens to one affects the other. The health of the vine is interconnected to the grapes and vice versa. That's what our oneness is like as the church, it comes from each one of us having a personal connection to the source of life. It comes from each one of us being personally connected to Jesus and through that connection to him, we're connected to one another. That's what makes being part of the church at times the most glorious thing and the most heart-rending thing the most joyful thing and sometimes the most painful thing. As we carry our burdens together, as we mourn with one another, (laughs) being part of the church does that because we are connected to one another, people of God. You are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the Bible's claim. And it can make that claim again because when we put our faith in Jesus, something happened. Something happened where uh, we, we were redeemed. There was a change that happened to us. We were united to Jesus and the connection that had been broken before because of our sin and rebellion has been restored in the cross of Christ and we each get personally connected to the common source of life. We share in his sonship. We're made one in God's family. Now, Paul is very quick in our passage today to bring us into some very practical social implications of this. And I believe that these social implications actually begin in verse 27 itself. Did you notice the metaphor of being clothed with Christ? I mean, that's kind of a strange phrase to say that Jesus is like this new set of clothes that we put on. And what Paul means by saying this is that in our identification with Jesus and believing in him and putting our faith in him, there is such a deep work that happens. The gospel is all-encompassing in our life that it's not just a private inward thing, but it makes its way into how you and I live. And people see it in our lives. I mean, clothes are on the outside, right? Right? Clothes are what other people see, and I might add, clothes are social. They're social. Think about it. Clothes are fundamentally a social item. The clothes we wear, I mean, in large part throughout human history, your clothes indicated your status in society. How clean they were, what color they were, what kind they were. Right? You could tell someone's clothes from, from their clothes by what their trade was or what their job was. Clothes are social. I think about this really tangibly as we live through the coronavirus. Have you been dressing the same way you did before the pandemic? Be honest. Be honest. Did you ever go to work in your sweatpants or your pajamas? before the pandemic, did you ever go to a meeting with a client wearing business casual on the top and sleep casual on the bottom? I don't think so. Why? Because before Corona, we were socially close to one another and now we are socially distant. Clothes are social. And Paul brings us into the very social and practical implications of the gospel, of of how being baptized and united with Christ and raised in Him and being clothed with Him, how that changes our life. And he spells a very important implication out in verse 28. He says, and this is a very famous verse, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I want us to consider what this means and what this doesn't mean. And what Paul is doing is he's highlighting some of the most glaring and obvious social distinctions of his day, the privilege of Jews over Gentiles, the privilege of free people over slaves, the privilege of man over woman in that culture. In fact, there was even a, a very common, well-known Jewish prayer that was part of the morning liturgy where a, a Jewish man would, would thank God, and this is how the prayer went. He would thank God that he was not made a Gentile or a slave or a woman. And there's an interesting parallel between that prayer, which Paul would have known, and this verse, exactly the same thing. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, free nor slave, men or woman, And what? Paul is signaling is this, that in the gospel and in the community of the gospel, these privilege distinctions are erased. These privilege distinctions are erased. What this does not mean, this does not mean the erasing of culture or gender or of difference. This doesn't mean that when you become a Christian and put your faith in Jesus, that all of a sudden your culture, out the window. It doesn't mean that if you were a man, you're no longer a man, what is erased is privilege distinction. That because of this or that, any, anything that we latch onto and say that because I'm this, I'm above this person. I have rights over and above this person. I have this status. I need these privileges because I am what have you, man, free, or Jewish. See, Paul is not saying that everyone is the same or that our culture or gender or difference are gone, but that everyone is equal. Erasing the privilege distinctions does not mean the erasing of diversity, and diversity is one of those beautiful things that we see in Revelation, that all the nations will gather and worship, worship the living God. Well, Paul is saying, the social implications of the gospel is equality among the community of the gospel, that regardless of your age, stage, race, sex, or wealth, you're just as much a child of God as the next person. The privilege is done away with because the only privilege that matters is the sonship of Christ himself, which is shared by us all. We've all been clothed with Christ. We all had the same need. We were all sinners. We were all separated from God and we've all been shown the same grace in the cross of Christ and through faith we've been given the same clothes, the same Lord, the same source of life and the same Savior. We all share in the life of the crucified, risen and ascended Lord. Now we're preaching. (laughs) And therefore, there's a further implication in verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. He goes back to this Jewish claim of special identity and opens it up for everyone. Abraham's family. And heirs according to the promise. You've got full rights as an inheritor in the kingdom of God. This was illustrated so practically in Paul's own life. Paul was Jewish and he viewed his faith in Christ as the culmination and the fulfillment of his Jewish faith that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But before he met Jesus, he made so much of his privilege distinctions. In Philippians 3, Paul is talking about this and he says this, He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks they're they're privileged because of their ethnicity or their race or their religion, he says, I have more reason to have such confidence. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless blameless he had such confidence but he laid it all down he had such privilege but it was completely erased for him from his life why how but whatever gain i had count i had whatever privilege i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ that's what he says for the sake of christ and you might be wondering, what did it for him? What about Christ did it for him that he was gonna, gonna lay down all his privilege and even just see it as nothing, as worthless? Well, have gotta turn back a page in Philippians chapter two, verse five. Probably one of the most stunning uh, pieces of writing, in my opinion, that Paul penned, and, and some even believe this was an early Christian hymn. This is what Paul says. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now he turns to talk about Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he had the privilege of God, the divine privilege, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What did it for Paul? What completely turned his world upside down that he would see his privilege and just cast it aside as worthless? This is what he saw. He saw God himself lay down his divine privilege. He saw God himself lay down his divine privilege to rescue him and fill him with love. And if God had done that for Paul, how could he not do the same to set aside his own privilege to serve others and to make the good news known to them? Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You see, it's as we see God himself laying down his privilege in Christ and coming to us to rescue us that we are able to do this as the church. And very practically, this means for us that that no one has the right to look down on others. No one has the right to look down their nose at others because of culture or class or gender. It was happening in the church of Galatia. Jewish Christians looking down on Gentile Christians. And even Peter got caught up in it. Peter The rock on which Jesus would build the church. And and let's face it, if it can happen to Peter, it can happen to us. I mean, are we more mature than Peter? And this happens in churches today, all the time. Because right now, as as I'm talking about community and the community of the church, let's face it, there is the ideal and then there is the real. (laughs) We all have our stories of how we've been hurt by others in the church. We all have our stories of how church has gone wrong. The media is full of stories of how the church has gone wrong. But God hasn't given up on the church. And for some reason, in his wisdom, which to us so often looks like foolishness, he chose to carry out his plan for the renewal of all things through the church. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't live his life and, and write down everything we were supposed to do, like a recipe that if we follow, okay, we'll be you know, doing God's will. Jesus didn't do that. What did he do? He called people to himself. He called stubborn, silly, sinful people, even people who were enemies of one another, and he taught them the way of his kingdom. He taught them the way of the kingdom and then what did he do? He sent them out. He sent them into the world to be in the world to represent his person in the fullest sense. To tell the story of God's saving work and he promised them the gift of his own spirit to lead and to teach and to empower them. Maybe God's wisdom is foolishness to us but he hasn't given up on the church. And we may not let the real obscure the ideal. We may not let the real hold us back from pursuing the ideal because being part of church isn't just a side dish to the Christian life. It's not an optional add-on. It is central to God's purpose for the world and for your life. And so even though we can be painfully aware of the real, We're called to pursue the ideal, the church as God intends it, cleansed, pure, holy, and full of his life, just this radiant church. How do we do that? How do we do that? It all comes back to the love of God. I mean, as we talk about the social implications of the gospel and even social justice, what is social justice but love expressed socially and practically? It comes back to the love of God. Listen to this quote from Leslie Newbegin, who was uh, a man who lived in India for about 50 years. He was a missionary there and he wrote extensively on mission and the church. Newbegin says this In its essential nature, the unity of believers is a work of the Holy Spirit, binding us to one another in the love wherewith Christ loved us in the love wherewith Christ loved us. And its essential human condition is the faith, which consists in casting oneself wholly upon that love and opening heart and mind and soul to its influence. You see, apart from an unmistakable knowledge and awareness and experience of the love of God and the grace of Jesus Christ in our lives, we break down, we disintegrate into this group of insecure, squabbling, legalistic people. And I just wanna say, to be honest, when I think about my neighbors that, that live around me, they don't want anything to do with that. They don't want anything to do with that. And when we think of our neighborhood or, or the people in our city in need of hope, unless we are filled with the love with, wherewith Christ has loved us and, and expressing itself flowing outwards, they're not gonna want any part of us because fundamentally we will be no different than the world. But when we allow the Spirit of God to open us, I love that phrase, to open our heart and mind and soul to the influence of Christ's love, And we allow how the Son of God laid down his divine privilege to fundamentally shape our lives and how we handle ourselves socially. Until we see God moving towards us with that self-giving love, we're not gonna be able to be the church in unity. We're not gonna be a church that expresses and embodies this gospel. And I wanna commend to you a very practical step for this week? What if we as the church, as we're now you know, in, in increasing COVID case numbers in Ontario and we're realizing, oh my goodness, we're, we're, we're still in this and it's getting worse. What if we as a church committed to calling two people? Calling two people this week and saying, hey, how are you doing? Can I pray for you? Can I help you? Let's connect. What, what if we just did that and showed care and expressed love in that way? What difference might that make in our church family and beyond? Let's do that this week. I wanna challenge you to do that. Call two people. And as we move out from here, may we know with every fiber of our being the love of God flowing into us and out of us and back again that we might be bound to one, to one another in the love wherewith Christ loved us. I want to invite you to pray with me. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come. Come upon us for the renewal of worship and witness to Jesus. We are powerless, Lord. We are powerless to put into practice the, this good news that you're saying to us this morning apart from your power and love. Help us, Lord, to open ourselves to the influence of your love that love which flows from the Father to the Son and through you into our very lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. May your love flow out and back between us that we may live out the reality that we are all one in Christ, that this wouldn't be just like an invisible thing we say about the church, oh, they're one. Yeah, that's an invisible reality. May this reality become visible by how we live and love one another living in that personal connection to you, Jesus Christ, the source of our life and being transformed vitally by your spirit. I pray this, Jesus, in your mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.